Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. Today I'm joined by a man who, when he isn't flying helicopters or operating his company, Raven Hill Risk Control, he's writing books detailing his time with the French Foreign Legion or working as a private military contractor. Author of the books Appel and Seville, welcome to the Silvercore Podcast, Joel Struthers. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Joel, I've been looking forward to this for a while. This is, um, I've read your books, love them. They're amazing. Uh, really interesting background. Your name's been floating around for a long time now. Uh, some similar people, similar circles. I've yep, done right. a little bit of, uh, uh, research on the past. I'm really, really, um, really pleased to be able to have this opportunity. No, I, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Vice versa. Um, yeah, glad we could, we could do this. <laughs> well, this isn't your yeah. first podcast. In fact, you were on a pretty big podcast in the past, which was, uh, uh a neat one. That was a long, long episode with a ton of great information, but you're on Jocko's podcast before, eh? It was as in, yeah, it was long. Correct. Yeah. That was the first, uh, first podcast I'd ever done. So it was a bit of a, an introduction, trial by fire. No kidding. Um, and yeah, talking for, I think we always talk for four hours. That's tough. That's about my quota for six months. <laughs> and, and That's in fact, right. This would be my second in-person. Um, so I haven't done another one since, since Jocko. I've done a couple Zoom ones. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to do. I find this much more yeah, effective. Yeah, Zoom's never the same. Yeah. Get, getting online, you, you yeah. trying to pick up on this nuances, the paraverbal, the nonverbal, and it's just, 100%. if someone's kicking you under the table, all right, you just yeah. don't get that yeah. anymore. No, true. So, okay. I'd imagine it's got to be pretty nerve wracking to go in and do your very first podcast to be on such a large platform like that, where hundreds of thousands of people will be listening to your, to your story. How we'll, we'll talk about some of the earlier stuff, but I'm just kind of curious on that podcast one, yeah. how did that come about? And I got a bit of an idea from reading your books and, um, what was it like? Like what, what was that whole experience like? Oh, great. Um, good question. Um, so the Jocko podcast came about, someone suggested actually sending him a Hail Mary copy of the book, mm. Appel, which I did. And I'd forgotten about it, to be honest with you. And then <laughs> one day in the mail was a card from Jocko saying, Hey, you know, enjoy the book. Would you be interested in coming down and, and doing the podcast? Wow. So obviously I was, Yeah, yeah. I committed at that point. Um, so then what I did, I had a, a couple months before I had to fly down to uh, San Diego. I watched as many episodes as I could, uh, I've, uh, obviously his podcast, yeah. get, a, get an idea of, of his, um, interview style, mm. what type of questions he likes, what he'd focus on. And also just the setting of the room. Right. Hoping that when I got there, I would be comfortable and it would be, cause obviously that was gonna be my first kick of the cat. The fact that it was filmed and a big part of the, um, well, not depredation, but you know, obviously the, the worry was that, you know, in a podcast as such, I would be representing somewhat a legionnaire. Right. You know, because albeit I'm out, I'm no longer a legionnaire. I'm not representing all legionnaires. I would be, 
you know, potentially the first kind of first look at a Legionnaire for a lot of that demographic, certainly the States and North America, you know, which is obviously the, yeah. the, the prime watcher for that, uh, that podcast. So I had to choose, um, my wording carefully on how I answered certain things and came across. So I think, you, you know, for those that have watched or do watch it, I think you can tell at the beginning, I'm kind of a bit, you know, um, less forthcoming <laughs> and more careful. It's like, I'm not saying a word. Yeah. <laughs> and then you forget, right? I mean, obviously you got, I have a microphone in front of me. I got the cameras in my face. There's, you know, echo sitting there. Yeah. Um, so it took a while to kind of just relax. And then once the car conversation started to flow, then you forget. Right. And then I would answer somewhat, uh, you know. Get a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. So I think it, you know, the latter half of the, the interview is a little more flowing and, and easier to, to listen to perhaps. I haven't listened to the whole thing. I, I can't stand listening to myself. To be honest with you, but I watched parts <laughs> yeah. of it, um, just to see, you know, I didn't come across like a total idiot, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, but obviously Jocko is very good and skilled at what he does. Yeah, he is. And, uh, that four hours flew by him before he knew it, it was, it was over. And I was sucking back his, his Jocko drink there. So I had. Oh yes. The old, uh, yeah. Old Jocko juice. Talk flow was going. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, it was quite the introduction. Uh, and then obviously opened up that, uh, you know, that whole demographic for, so it was big for, for Appel. What did you find the response after that? Um, it was good. I don't spend too much time, you know, looking at comments or all that kind of stuff, mm. but I think we're all human and we do. So I, I was keen on kind of seeing what the, the reception or what the view was from, from watchers. And yeah, it seemed, uh, it seemed positive. Um, so I, I monitored that obviously the sales of the book right. took, a, took an increase as a result, but what I noticed, or sorry, what I noticed the most was I had a lot of people reach out that were interested in the Legion and that had questions about, you know, potentially right. joining and asking questions. Um, now obviously, I mean, I left the Legion what in 2000, so it's been a chunk sure. of time. I think I did that podcast two years ago, just over two years mm -hmm. ago. So I'm not a recruiter. The Legion's obviously changed, but you know, I respect the people asking and reaching out. So I do respond. Um, and I try to, you know, point them in the right direction. And that was at the end of the day, the objective of Appel was to educate. There's so much bullshit out there and misconceptions. And, you know, um, I just kind of finally came around and said, listen, maybe it's on me to share a story that's factual. Um, and in the case of Appel, there was three things that I, I needed for it before I would let it go out. It was that the Legion approved the narrative. Mm. Um, I had a forward from a, an acting officer within, which, you know, gives the story legitimacy. Totally. And that there was a, um, a reputable publisher that would put it out. And you got all three. So, so yeah, so that was, and I knew nothing about books. I'm not a writer per se. You know what I mean? This was just something I felt like maybe it was on me to do. And for those who wanted to, to know the facts, they could read a book and be educated factually, you know? Um, is that funny? I'm not a writer. I've got a couple of books. You know, I'm not really a writer. Well, yeah, but I'm not, you know, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. How do you, it takes a lot of work. Um, obviously I'm able to share a story because I was obviously the main actor in that story, but with like Appel and Seville, obviously an editor is a big help just for the, uh, grammatical side of stuff, you know, you know, um, and, uh, well, we can get into that. Putting a book together is, is, is yeah. challenging. Yeah. Well, it was, it's funny. Uh, Dean Nugent was on a podcast with Jay Spud, who friends of mine, yep. um, British army talking about, uh, uh, mental health and a, a num number of dif different things, transitioning and from the army life to civilian life. And, uh, Jace has gotten into mountain guiding. He's a mm -hmm. firefighter, ACMG mountain guide, and he's out in the, the hills and climbing all the time. And Dean 
was out there climbing with him and some girl says, oh, so you're a climber. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not a climber. And I yeah. just, she's like, well, you got all the kit, you're going up and down the <laughs> rock. Like a, you kind of look like a climber. He's like, I guess so. It's cause I'm, I guess I'm comparing myself to these other people yeah. who I view them as climbers, but people are all looking at you. So I'm not really a writer. Well, you've got a couple of great books out there. You're a writer. Fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's having books is a bit of a weird thing, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> you put yourself out there. Um, but yeah, uh, I will say I'm proud of them. Yeah. Um, but it's not something that I actively look and seek to do. Like, will they be a third? I, I certainly don't think so unless life put a story out there that I felt was worth sharing. Um, but yeah, these two just came to be for, for whatever reason. Well, what were some of the most common questions that you'd get from people after doing the last podcast and people were interested in the Legion? What, what do you see come up over and over? A lot of times they were asking if they thought they would give me a brief rundown of their situation in life. And did I think they would get accepted? Mm. Um, and typically my answer would be, you won't know unless you try. Right. I'm certainly not the, you know, I don't have the, the facts and I don't know if they're going to get in out. All you can do is go. If that's what you want to do and you be careful in what you wish for, and we will get to that. Mm. Um, just be prepared, go over and give it a shot. And then you've, you know, life is short. You only got one shot. If that's something you want to do, you got to do it. But if you're asking me too many questions, chances are it's not for you. You know what I mean? I think typically yeah. the people that join is they see this thing, the Legion, they, they look into it. That's something I'd like to try and you just go. Right. Um, another case, I've actually talked to one person on the phone. I gave him, you know, the respect that he reached out and he was a young, uh, Navy officer, went to, uh, went to the Academy and I guess in the SEAL system, you know, not, not that I'm a, I know much about it, but from what he told me as the officers pre, uh, selection buds, whatever, they go mm -hmm. through a pre-screening for the officers to make sure that they're of a, uh, a proper quality. And he, he had topped his class, I think at the Academy was a wrestler, um, you know, fit young guy, went through buds and got injured. Mm. Um, went through the rehab process, got back in, did a second time, got through the, uh, you know, the initial phase and was in the training, you know, it takes about a year and a half before they're given their, their trident, whatever. Mm. He was injured again. I think it was a diving incident. And in the blood tests, they found a, uh, spike level of testosterone. So in his recovery mm. period, he had taken TRT sure. or whatever, as I think probably 80%, whatever. Sure. Sure. They kicked him out. The Navy said, that's it. You're, you're out. Hmm. Um, so he had called me, um, he was obviously, you know, a young man wanted to serve his country and he was a bit lost. He felt that was unfair. And I, I agreed. I thought mm -hmm. that was unfair. That's why I talked to him on the phone. And he said he was thinking about going over to France to join. Um, so we had a, a frank discussion about his level of education, his place in life, what he was looking for. And I just, I was just honest with him and said, listen, you know, it's an option but it's not the only option, mm. um, choose wisely. And right. I didn't, you know, I won't go into it too much. That's between him and I, but sure. I, I never heard from him again. I don't know if he went over and did it, but you know, I think certain people, it would be a, a good experience. Others not. Yeah. Who, what sort of personality type would you say this is going to be a good experience for you? Typically the Legion looks for people with a bit of life skills. So early twenties, mid twenties. Mm. So you're not just, you know, a knee jerk reaction or you're running away from something. Right. Um, that life experience can be positive and negative, but you're in that phase as a, as a young man where you're kind of learning from your errors and you, you kind of see that, listen, I got to get myself on the right path. If not, things aren't going to go well, mm. which I think they like, because then you're, you're open to instruction and, and forming, right? They're pretty good at, 
they've been doing this for a long time. So they can, they can make a soldier out of a certain type of individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so to answer your question more directly is I think it's just someone that says, I want to fucking try that. Yeah. There you go. Um, but what I do say to the, the people do ask, I don't go into detail. I just say, listen, make sure you're, you're ready for this. It's, it's more mental than physical and know the language. Mm-hmm. Knowing French before you show up is a huge benefit. You don't have to be fluent, but you have a good grasp of it because that is the biggest struggle. And that's the difference. And I get into that in Seville and, um, you know, that was kind of, cause I would say 80% of the people that reach out are American. Um, so there's a lot of them and it's, it's tough because up until recently, uh, I think for their, their young men and women who want to join, you can't have any type of criminal record or your, you know, so you might make yeah. a stupid mistake. You get a DUI when you're 18, 19, whatever, as you know, happens to people. It yeah. doesn't mean you're a bad person, but now you can't even join your own, your own military and they're disillusioned and looking for a way out. Now it worked for me. The mm-hmm. Pell was a good experience or sorry, the Legion was a good experience for me. Um, but it's also time and place and luck and then what you bring to the table and what you make of it. That's the big thing. Yes. If you think you're going to go over there, you know, and in, in a month you're going to be jumping into Africa to, <laughs> you know, that's not the way it is. It's, it's a tough go and it's, and it's mental. Um, you know, it's, first of all, you're in a, a foreign country, a mm. foreign army, foreign language, food's different. Everything's different. It's old school. The discipline is there. You're not going out on the weekends. Mm. You're not going back to your girlfriend at, at Christmas, mm-hmm. not for a while. Yeah. Um, and that weighs on people. Um, and a lot of people in the ranks and the Legion, they don't have much to go back to. They're there for different reasons. You're, you know, North American that goes over. It's probably easy to talk yourself into going home where you have that good life. You know what I mean? It's, it's something that's, uh, pertinent. And I try to put across, I don't want to dissuade people, but I also want to say, Hey, be careful what you wish for, because it's, it's not necessarily what you, what you think it is, you know? You know, when you read through different books of people who've gone through, uh, elite schools, uh, I mean, An- Andy McNabb, what's his name? Steven, uh, whatever is. Yeah. Bravo, Bravo, yeah. Yeah. Bravo two zero, immediate action, all the rest. And, uh, a lot of these guys come from backgrounds that were, were difficult, that yeah. were harder, that, yeah. um, and, and it seems to be that's the, um, uh, the type of person that the, the army or the special forces groups would really kind of attract people looking for discipline in their life, a new way to, uh, to approach things, yep. to be something that they're, they're lacking options outside of that. Sure. So I should imagine if your toes are really easy to touch the ground and, yep. and yep. kind of walk on out of there mentally, that would be, yeah. be tough to stay in something that's going to be difficult for them. But if you're, if you got nothing else to grasp onto, this is it. Let's give it at all. Yep. No uh, fair one. Whereas I wasn't of that. No, you, you weren't. Know, I was, yeah. Who knows? I mean, I'm still trying to figure myself out too. So let's, <laughs> let's not go there. That'll be a, yeah, yeah, okay. be a difficult podcast, yeah. but, um, <laughs> yeah, who knows? And that's, I think I had, it was an off, a British officer reached out at some point, just talking, he'd been in Afghanistan about the same time period that I was there. Uh, and he was talking about, he had a, uh, a young squad in his group that had served in the Legion. And he said he was quite a character, got himself into a lot of trouble, but when it came down to the shit, he was, he was the guy that he went, he trusted the most, like he, right. he got the job done. And I think, you know, there's peacetime armies, wartime armies, mm-hmm. different types of people rise to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and when shit gets tough, it's, it's interesting, the individuals and the type of people that are actually the ones that step up, you know, well, it's not necessarily always 
the ones you think that would be yeah. the ones that step up, yeah. Well, it's the ones that maybe had a little bit of a sordid past. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. unfortunate in a way, perhaps, that, yeah. that there is that criminal record barrier because the people who are pushing their oh. boundaries, getting into trouble, yes. challenging themselves yeah. and others and coloring outside the lines, so to yep. speak, can oftentimes be the best soldiers because they can think outside the box. hundred percent. And I think that's why the Legion has been successful. They take people with a bit of life skills uh-huh. and then they're able to shape them, give them that discipline that they're potentially looking for. A lot of times we get in trouble because there's a lack of, you know, guidelines and discipline right. and we're trying to prove ourselves. We're young. We've got all that adrenaline in our testosterone yep. in our system, you know, Legion, you show up, they're like, okay, you can use that focus yeah. and adrenaline, but these are the, the guidelines and you will respect them and you'll do this, you know. Properly. Well, what are some of the myths? Cause you say, you know, dispelling some of the myths. What are some of the more prevalent myths? Um, well, a lot of things annoyed me. And that was the big thing is when the subject of I served in the French Royal Angel comes up in a small conversation, it's impossible to explain. And that's not mm. my, I'm not good at small talk anyway. And people would always have misconception, misconception, sorry, that it's, you know, murders and stuff that run away to France to join the French Foreign Legion, which. Right in its inception was true. They would take, you know, um, people of that, uh, you know, background, they would give them a choice to go to prison or, or certain legion, but it's changed. The legion is now a part of the French military, mm. same rules and regulations. Um, and they don't, they take, you know, I served with some pretty, pretty damn good people, respectable people, um, that I respect to this day. And so it annoys me. So I have a hard time. I might come uh-huh. across short and it's like, you know what? Shut the fuck up, man. Yeah. Um, but that's not fair. So that's where Pell, but that is the big misconception is the type of indi- individual, sorry, that joins the Legion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in this day and age, it's a young man that's looking to soldier and for whatever reason he can't in his own country for what, whatever, sure. whatever that may be. There's not the options. They don't have the military that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. They're not active or they have that background when they're no longer able. Um, well, that's what I happened think, with you, right? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was exactly. The, uh, the Legion did me a big favor and that's why, you know, I put in the time and effort to, um, to share that. I have a lot of respect for the Legion in France for what they did for me. It worked well for me. Mm-hmm. It's not something I'd like my son to experience, for example. Mm. And I don't think it's for everybody, but for me, for whatever reason, it, it worked. You and, needed uh, it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So you grew up military family, military yep. backgrounds. You were over here reservist with the- Correct, yep. Uh, yeah, for all Westminster Regiment here in New Westminster and, um, said, I'm just, I don't see the options over here that I do over there. Exactly. I was in Wainwright doing our battle school and the Canadian military was going through its restructuring and the Westies at that point were tasked with the, um, uh, PPCLI and the next course theoretically, once there was a spot available would be a jump course in Edmonton. And that's always Mm -hmm. something I was interested in doing was jumping. Um, and I think it stems from. My grandfather, my dad's dad, who was second wave, uh, Juno, he had given me, uh, I think it was 101st, uh, jump smock that he traded with a, a guy so on cool. D-Day. And I think my mom threw it out, but Come she on. says, she says no, but I. <laughs> it's gone. I still love my mom, but that's, <laughs> that'll stick with me. Who uh, knows? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure she didn't, but anyway, I wore that thing and I always wonder if that gave me the, uh, that itch to be a, be a jumper, but, um. You know, I watched all the, the Vietnam War movies. Anyway, yeah, um, I'm in Wainwright. It kind of comes down the pipeline that we're going to be retasked to be anti-tank tow, you know? And, uh, 
it just happened that there was an NCO on one of the other courses who had recently come back from the Legion and he had served five years with the rep, which is the airborne regiment in the Legion. Yeah. And one of our master corporals that was on the course, he was a Westie, but you know, they detached some of the NCOs for the, for the course. He said, Hey man, you know, if you're, if you're itching to jump, go to France, you can join. And I was like, what? I knew nothing about, right. at least like most people. So I, I looked into it. Um, I had actually called the recruiter across the board in Washington. I think it was Marine Corps, um, and asked, you know, and I was basically told it would take a year, two years to get the green card at that time. Mm. I have no f- American family, so it would take a while. And I was a young man, you're impatient. So I was like, screw yeah. it, I'm going to France. And yeah, that timeline's was. different when you're oh, young, yeah, right? Yeah. So I went over and, uh, and I spoke, that's why I wrote to the Legion. They sent me a letter back with all the different uh, recruiting depots, some of the information. Um, and I was fortunate because my dad, as we mentioned, he was a fighter pilot in the Canadian Air Force and I grew up you know, a big chunk of my youth was in, uh, Germany yeah. and the Canadian Armed Force Base, um, all the schools are French immersion. So I took right. French immersion until grade eight. That's a huge um, help. Eh? So I had, yeah, I had a really good base. So that was, that was a big part of my, you know, I would assume favorable experience in Legion is I had the language and it opens up a lot of doors early on. Cause if you don't pick up the language, it's not, uh, it's not a good experience. So you contact them, they get back to you. Are you sitting there? thinking like, what the hell am I doing? Like when you're younger, that time frame, cause there's a commitment that you're going to be having yep. to give them a, a certain portion of your life. Five years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. And five years, you're how old at the time? I was 20, 21, I believe. When 21. I yeah. Okay. So like another quarter of your life from that date anyways, right? Yep. Um, now, <laughs> yes. Now like, my life was, big. yeah, the, I needed a, a change of direction. Okay. And something to focus on that was a little more positive. Um, so it was pretty much, I'm going for whatever reason, it just hit a, hit a, hit, hit a mark with me. Um, I had seen old pictures of, uh, the predecessor to the rep, the BEP jumping in mm. Indochina, you know, and, uh, uh, Dem Fu and then in Algeria and those, you know, black and white pictures of guys jumping out of DC threes and stuff was just for me, it's like, you know, that wasn't an option for me in Canada. I got to go and yeah. I didn't really think too much of it. Now, when I got over there and I found the, um, the Legion, uh, depot in, uh, Strasbourg where I was going to sign up, I sat across from the, the depot for an hour or two on the stairs. There's a church, I think across the way and there's, you know, the big steps. So I just sat there kind of looking at the door, reflecting on my, on my choices. But at that point I had already committed. There I was in, in You're France. there and it was happening. And so I rang the little. Butterflies or, in the stomach. Fuck us long time. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I think the big thing for me was if I was doing this, I didn't want to be, I knew at the point, I think I'd been told that, you know, typically they take one in six or seven okay. depends on, uh, but during my time period, that's when the iron wall had come down, mm-hmm. um, the iron curtain. So there was an influx of Eastern blockers so they could pick and choose. So the odds of getting in were, were, were tough. Right. Cause they only can take a certain amount and they have, you know the pick of the crop, well, not the crop, but they have the ability to pick and choose, um, yeah. based on the criteria they look for. So my fear, to be honest with you, was that I would have to come home saying I didn't even get into the French foreign legion, you know? Yeah. I hate to say it, but, and yeah. I didn't, I didn't necessarily know how tough it would be to get in, but I hadn't, I didn't have a plan B for me. That was, I'm going there. I want a soldier as young man. I want to do it for real. And, uh, you know, hopefully touch wood, it, it worked and it did. 
Lovely. So you have pictures of the rep and the BEP and this idea of what the Legion is going to be like, and you've had a little bit of an opportunity to correspond with them, yep. but all up until that point, nothing was truly real. They were just the thoughts of what you had in your head of what it's going to be like or what others have told you. When did things really become real for you in the Legion sense? Um, well, I had read Legionnaire by Simon Murray. Yes. That was a big, from his time during the, uh, the war in Algeria, that was a big, a big one for me. I liked the, I liked the story. Um, so I had my limited interaction with the Legion. I knew I needed to do something. Mm. Um, so I, I went and once that door opened up and that big corporal chef asked for my passport and said, you want to join? <laughs> I went in and they show me, uh, they put in a VHS cassette. This is all old back in the day, right? This was 90, when did I go over 94? Okay. Um, they put in all, all these cassettes with the different languages. So we put in an English cassette and it showed luckily to me, for me, it started off with the, the Legion or the rep, sorry, jumping, uh, out of the Transals and C-130 and Calvi. Um, so it just. Right there. I was like, like I'm sold. this is a good sign. Yeah. This yeah. is a, um, and really at that point they could have shown me anything. I mean, I was kind of, I was in, you know. Yeah. It doesn't um, matter what they showed you. And then from there, it was about a month before I actually went off to basic. There's a whole, from there it's like from Strasbourg, there's a, they do a, a quick recruitment where they, you know, you go to a, a medical, a, it's a military medical facility. They do a quick, uh, um, you know survey or whatever you want to call it, medical. Yeah. Um, they pick and choose from there. Uh, and then you're sent down to Obying, which is the Legion's headquarters, the premier. Um, and f there you're in like a, re a recruitment area and you spend typically a month and there they, they go through all the different, uh, phases and criteria and pick and choose. And then off you go to Castell, which is the catch armor and that's their training regiment, not okay. far from Toulouse where they build the Airbus and basic training is four months. Okay. So the first, first month there's 50 of you and you're at a farm and it's basically these old, there's four, uh, training companies in the regiment and each training company, they bought these, uh, basically a farm with an old farmhouse, rebuilt them for, for barracks yeah. and you go there and your first month is basically just learning the, what it is to be a legionnaire, the discipline, how they go about doing things, their, yeah. their way of doing business, learning the language and the songs. Cause they're yeah, big on the, the big songs. on the songs, but you know, in a, in an appell, I get on it, I do shit on it, but yeah. I, I respect it yeah. and it's done for a reason and it's, it's effective. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's smart, but yeah, for that first month, it's tough. And that really weeds out, um, yeah. not the week per se, but the people that are not mentally there for the right reasons. And then at the end of basic, you're given a chance to go back to the civilian life. So you can either. Do your five years yeah. or get out. But once you commit, you're theoretically you're stuck in. for five. Um, and I think in our group, there was a dozen that decided to go back. Okay. And, uh, depending on where you finish in basic, you can pick and choose where you want to go. Um, the different regiments. Um, so I was fortunate, finished well, and then I chose the rep and. Wow. That's where, I, that's where I went. So. You spent your time, people, if they really want to get into the ins and outs or that's like, that's in your book appell. Yeah. And uh, right. great book, by the way, really enjoyed that. For sure. Um, you do your time with the French foreign legion and you say, okay, I got these skills now. How can I apply this in the civilian market? And started looking at the, being a private military contractor. Yeah. Uh, so I get to the rep, I do. Basically a year with the first company, 
which is uh, they specialize in Phibia, mm-hmm. uh, fighting built-up areas. And then I did selection for their, the GCP, which is similar to the uh, the British or the, the Canadian Pathfinders. Yep. But they have a second role where they support the French Operations yep. Special Command. Um, so they can work as Pathfinders for the regiment or as a tier two group for the for the CUS. Um, so I did selection for that. And that was a 10 man halo team. Okay. Um, so I worked, I was fortunate in that, and I'll get to your, your question. Yeah, yeah. The reason for this is, you know, a small 10 man team. So it'd be an officer, senior NCOs and junior ranks. And you had to be a minimal, uh, rank of corporal to be in the GCP. Yeah. But we were treated differently. It was more of a, a team environment. The hierarchy was there. The discipline was there, but it was a little, little looser. Yeah. And a lot of times we were w- away from the regiment and the legion so we could relax a bit. It wasn't quite mm. as, um, disciplined, but as long as we were doing our jobs, maintaining, you know, a proper level of professionalism and, and fitness, all that kind of stuff, there was no issue. I mean, if you start to fuck up, obviously they'll, they'll be all over that. Yeah, they would. But so I was working, we were always in the back of helicopters, the super Pumas, super Frelon. Um, and I was 29 at this point. So it was kind of the, the phase of my career in the Legion, whereas I would have to decide if I wanted to go NCO mm. and do the 15 years, which allows for a, a small pension mm. or, and this was just for myself, I'm 29. Is this something I want to do for the rest of my life for those 15 years or a, a new career, but I need to get on now at 29, you're kind of at that cusp. You are, yeah. And then being in those helicopters and watching the pilots and stuff, that was something I was interested in. Um, and, uh, in fact, my father had mentioned, you know, actually before the Legion, he said, Hey, would you want to do do helicopters. But at that point in life, I was not ready for that kind of, yeah. I needed to do something else. So I actually had my interview with uh, Vancouver Island Helicopters training school from the, um, the phone booth in the regiments or in our company's, uh, parade square. Very cool. So I remember Dave was his name. He was the chief or the, uh, the main training pilot. And he was like, where are you calling from? I was like, oh, I'm calling from the, uh, parade square from the, uh, Deuxième rep in Calvi Corsica with French Foreign Legion. And there was a, a discernible <laughs> pause, you know, like what? <laughs> anyway, so that for me was the, um, the exodus, um, was to start a new, a new career, but two, twofold, um, I felt bad. Um, you know, the rep had given a lot of, um, Give me a good opportunity, put in the right. time and effort. You know, I'm now with the GCP. So I'm, you know, I've done my commando course. I've done my Halo Freefall course. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still fairly new and here I'm pulling the pin. Right. And my captain at the time, um, who's general now, General Demul, um, you know, kind of gave me a hard time for it, but he understood. Sure. Um, and I think as a Canadian, they understood that, you know, my situation's a bit different and I had always come to Legion not to leave Canada, but just to experience something different elsewhere. Right. And I always felt like, you know, I was a guest in, in the French army in France. I would always go home. I'm Canadian at the end of the day. And I never, I had the opportunity and the option to go and get my French passport, but I never did. Um, you know, I was a Canadian. Um, so. Interesting. Yeah. So for me, that was, you know, I felt, I don't know what the word is. Um, but I felt bad leaving, but the draw was, it was time to go. And unfortunately. Um, you know, this is pre, pre nine 11. Right. So we were, France is, is active. Um, but it wasn't Iraq, Afghanistan type active. Right. Um, so you're kind of looking at your, what you've experienced. And I did six years at this point. Um, and it, it's somewhat repetitive. 
you look at your, your peers, your senior NCOs, you see their career path and what, mm. what they're doing. Is that something you necessarily want to do? Um, and that's no knock on them. No. Respect because that's, that's tough, you know. But your if, ambitions were different. I had some different ideas and so I, so I came, I came home. You come back and you say helicopters, that's the thing for me. I want to learn how to fly a helicopter from one people will view what you were doing before as sort of a high level ambition. Mm. Helicopter flying is a high level of ambition in a few different ways, uh, for, for most people. Yeah. What, what was, what was that like to square? Um, it was tough. There was, it was a tough transition to be honest with you. It's, I think that's something I didn't really realize till later on, um, but I was in Victoria at the, the airport there in, on the island, uh, where the VIH had its training school, uh, within a couple months of getting out. So there was that real, you know, here I am a civvy now, you know, it was going from a life of a legionnaire living in garrison rules and regulations, pretty, pretty strict and uniform, you know, to now these newfound freedoms. So focus was tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I struggled with helicopters at the beginning. I didn't. We were initially training these R-22s, which is this little dinky helicopter. Okay. Like there's no room for one person there, let alone you and your instructor. Yeah. Um, and it was just, yeah, I, I, I didn't trust them and everything was kind of new. So it, I was, I was not a, a natural, if that, okay. if that sounds right, yeah. but, I, but I got, I got through it. I got the job done. Huh? Um, I knew nothing about the, the commercial helicopter industry in Canada at all. Yeah. All I knew was that I wanted to give this, give this a shot. So I, um, I started working for a company up, uh, in Fort Nelson, Northern BC, oil mm-hmm. and gas type stuff, learning my trade. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was challenging, but you know, um, also enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no regrets. And from there, you know, my, my career just continued on, but as a low time pilot in Canada, uh, the winters are, are sparse for work. There's not a lot of work. There's heli skiing and so, some right. stuff, but so typically you're kind of, you know, you're doing the summer months and then you're off for the, uh, for the winter. Mm-hmm. And that's where I kind of started to look into the, uh, the overseas type stuff. Right. Yeah. So how does, how does that develop? Because there's, I know there's a certain allure to the overseas type stuff to yeah. outsiders often. They say, look at, I've got this skills. I've been to the. I've got some basic training. I've been, um, yep. trained to be a soldier. I can use this. There's some good money in certain ways. Um, how did, how did you kind of decide, how did that transition happen for you? Did you have somebody else that says, Hey, look, come on over here. This is what you got to do. Well, and that's Seville. That's book right to it. It's basically right. once I leave the Legion and it gets into this. And again, careful what you wish for. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so. I had a couple of friends that had gotten out prior to me, uh, including Keith, who's the partner in Ravenhill. We'll get into that. Yeah. And they were working for, um, back in the day, there was two primary security firms out of London, uh, control risk group, CRG yep. and, and armor group were the, kind of the two main, and they would hire ex-legionnaires, um, Anglophones that had the, the French language for their contracts in Africa mm. with their clients which was predominantly exploration, oil and gas, that type of stuff. So they liked the Legionnaires cause we had that bilingual ability and we were, uh, you know, familiar with the African continent. Um, so I got out, I'm flying, winter's coming, you're not paid. 
anything as right. a low time pilot, um, just enough to survive. And, uh, so yeah, I threw my, um, resume together and, and sent them both off to CRG and Armor Group. And a long story short, Armor Group took me on. Yep. Um, and I started almost right away in Algeria, so North Africa, um, Armour Group had uh, a relationship with Kellogg Brown and Root, which at that point in time was a part of Halliburton Oil. Mm. Um, and they were drilling, uh, in the Sahara for natural gas and, and oil. So Armour Group would provide, uh, KBR Halliburton with OLCs, which were operations liaison coordinators. And yeah. we would be on the rigs, which were secured by the Algerian police or army, cause there was a terrorism issue in, in Algeria. Mm. Um, and we would just be the, uh the liaison between the, the protect the, the army or the, or the police and the client. So anything for road moves, you know, just what have you. Mm. So I basically just sat on a, on oil rig for three months and the money was, was good. Um, which helped the cause. Yes. And then, uh, you know, I'd go back to the, uh, back to Canada. Well, back to, for the flying in the summers. Um, and that relationship remained with armor group for, I did that for a couple of years, Algeria. In fact, I wrote a Pell on the rig, my first, first tour, I sat there for three months. And when I got out from the Legion, my grandfather, who had retired as a, um, a brigadier general, um, DSO, mm. um, was doing his degree at U of Vic at, I think he was, my aunt will get on me. I think he was 86, but anyway, yeah. he was doing his degree and he was writing his, um, his thesis, whatever. And he hadn't kept a diary during the war, which he regretted. And he was trying to piece together Cause it, right. he'd written, uh, it's called, uh, Abisher Soldier. Um, and, uh, so he said to me, he said, Joel, you know, if you didn't keep a, a journal, I suggest you write everything down now, because if not, you will regret it down the road. Good advice. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, smart man, obviously. Yeah. Um, so I, I took his, his advice and I just basically put together, you know, I sat on the rig, I had nothing but time. I think it was, you know, I don't know, 80,000 words, just zero respect for the, uh, English language, <laughs> not that I could have, but it was like all in caps, a lot of exclamation marks. And that, that sat for 10 years just on a word doc. Um, but it was there and that really? was the, that's where the book came okay. from. And over time with, with work, life and just, uh, certain things, I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe there's something in that, in that word doc. And I worked on that, created a pill. But anyway, so with, with armor group, um, I do that and then, uh, they were, when Iraq kicked off, Kellogg Brown and Root at that point had split because Dick, 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 you know, the Dick Cheney yep. history, whatever. Yep. Halle Burton and KBR split and KBR were awarded the log cap, uh, contract by the, uh, um, American, uh, what do you call it? The, um, what's well, a military, but what's the terminology for it? Anyway, um, yeah. to build all the bases. Okay. So, um, so early on, uh, armor group sent over, there's a group of us. Uh, there's two, uh, one X, the lead guys was, one was SAS. Um, the other one was DEP, there's an SBS guy on there. There's an Aussie SAS guy, two RMP, which is the British Royal Military Police that yeah. were, um, were PSD and they had worked with the, the SAS in, uh, in Ireland and then myself, the Lone Legionnaire. And, uh, we were in Baghdad early, it was 2003, so it had been only a couple months since the Americans enrolled into Baghdad. And, um, the idea was to train vetted in bracket Iraqis on PSD. <laughs> and then we would work with them so that when, uh, KBR execs came in the country, we'd be there to, 
pick them up at the airport and then move them to these different installations that they were going to. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was early. So that was my first kind of kick of the cack in, uh, in Iraq, come back to flying and then come back the next winter and things in Iraq had picked up. Um, so then I did some low profile stuff with the, the Iraqis and yeah, so that was the kind of back and forth, um, flying the overseas stuff, which was tough. Um, yeah, I'd think so. It, uh, cause as a low time pilot, you're trying to learn your trade and you know, you, you have a good summer, you get your hands and feet, you start to pick it up and then you're gone and you, you're on a whole different level and you come back and it's, yeah, it was, it was stressful. You got to learn that, it again. Yeah. And then you're, you know as I got a little more experience and I'm on fire. So it, there was no room for, it's kind of like, you're just thrown into the, into the fire, right? You're on mm. a fire, you're slinging and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I didn't like that. And that's what's one thing I didn't like about flying early on was I didn't like that you couldn't do it full time. Um, right. Which I'm fortunate now I can, but early on it was a challenge. And I think that's why, you know, um, not to go off on a tangent, but becoming a commercial helicopter candidate is, is challenging. A lot of people quit for that reason. Yeah. It's, I- it's tough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would think so. Yeah. And you seem like a real all or nothing sort of personality type. Like if you're going to get into it, you're going to give it 110%. Yeah, and, exactly. And, 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 and then to be forced off of it for a yeah. while and have to get back in, it's like, oh, come on. Yeah, I mean, I it's, suck. That's right. I yeah. was just doing this and yeah. I was doing okay. And now I, yeah. I still, do, I, I shit you not. So the company I worked for was out of, uh, um, Springbank airport, which is outside of Calgary. Yeah. And you know, I'd come back and they'd fly me in, you know, a red eye into Calgary. I'd go to the hangar do some groundwork and I'd do a training flight and then I'd have my check flight with Transport Canada, probably the same day. <clears throat> it was just like a, yeah. you know, information overload shock into the mouth, you know, of, <laughs> you know, can I still hover? No, and I, st- I, sh- you know, whenever I fly into Calgary, I think I still get anxiety. From really? It. Just a, it's like uh, a flashback. That's Like, holy shit, you know. That's I'm, I'm interesting. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, it all worked out for, for the good. It does. Yeah. yeah was, those helicopters, I tell you. So I've, I've flown a few planes, yep. basic understanding. And, you know, a buddy of mine has got me up in, uh, his helicopter and looks over as I like, take control. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, holy crow, are those things ever touchy? I mean, like you just think about it and they move, right? Yeah. Was, I and wasn't expecting that. That's the first mistake is thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we over, we overthink it. But yeah, I mean, they, you can tell, yeah, they're once it's like riding a bike, you know, uh, you remember when you were a kid at yeah, first, yeah. it's like, what is, and then once you get it, you don't think about it, it, uh. But there is skill fate for sure. I mean, that's oh, yeah. the easy part when it comes to, yeah, the, the finer precision stuff. Um, it's yeah, you need to be on it for sure. Well, so, okay. So Appel, you've got a book basically roughed out in the works in your kind of memoirs, diary kind of yep. format, but you didn't have that with Seville. You approached Seville. I, I'm imagining. Yeah, no, true. Yeah. You totally different. Seville as I'm going to write a book. Yeah. As opposed to I've got this platform I can kind of. So once. So yeah, word doc with Appel on it, um, 10 years passes, life's changed, you know, with circumstances and, and stuff I found interesting. And then there was never a book that came out that was a positive portrayal of a legionnaire, mm. which annoyed me. Um, typically the guys that did write about their experience in legion are deserters and mm. their story supports their narrative, but at the end of the day, they're quitters, you know? Yeah. And that kind of stems from the, the three things that I needed. So if I put this out. I wanted the Legion to, uh, to approve its narrative in the right. before, because then, you know, it's legit. You're getting a, yeah. and I think to this day, um, Appel is the only, you know, um, story of its kind that's, you know, has the Legion's approval and afford from an acting that's general. That's really cool. Yeah. I, th- I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm, that's really cool. I, I, yeah. I take that on the, on the, on the chest, that one. But yeah. anyway, so I decided, okay, maybe it's on me. 
I need to share the story perhaps, mm. you know? Um, so then I worked on it with a friend, um, for a while and then I hired a, um, and the friend was a, an ex legionnaire too. So I wanted him to go through and kind of look at stuff because, you know, I get stuff wrong. And mm. as I said, I, a lot of, when I did initially put it down, it's just all based on memory. Um, so we worked on that. And then when I hit my limit, I hired a, a professional editor, mm. um, which is challenging because they would know nothing about the subject matter. So you spend most of your time just asking questions. Right. Their questions. So you get nowhere until finally they kind of understand and get a grasping of the story. But then the big thing for me was that, and I, I get that a lot of, you read a lot of these in this genre in particular, um, they use a lot of ghostwriters. Right. So it's not necessarily their voice. Right. And some of the wording you used or some of the stuff you think, oh, really? It doesn't sound like a soldier to me. It's a right. big, I'm not, no judgment, but typically sometimes you, you know, you lose that. So the deal with my editor was, listen, you can't change my words. You can maybe add a comma or say, hey, let's, right. you know, let's, let's think about, you got to add something here, Joel. You can't. And I remember she said that to me early on, you can't be a sociopath and tell a story. Because, you know. <laughs> well, I guess yeah, you could. Yeah, you could, but, but you know, like a more. <laughs> introvert. So I'm like, you know, my yeah. individual, this was, was like, no, you gotta, you gotta tell us a bit about yourself so that the, the readers, and as I said, I'm not a writer. So I knew nothing about that. So I learned a lot in writing Appel. Right. Just the process. Um, so for Seville, um, uh, it was different. I went back to France last November. Um, and the idea was, I was, you know, it's, it was for some family research that it's in the book. Yeah. Um, and I met up with some friends from the Legion that are in Appel. Um, and during that visit, a story kind of came together mm. and I was like, and some people, you know, since Appel, cause I make reference to my, my, you know, going Iraq, Afghanistan post, uh, right. post Appel and people say, hey, you should write, you know, you should consider a, a follow-up book. And I never have, um, cause I didn't think there was anything to share there, but that the, during this trip, it seemed like, you know, this would be actually a good, there were some things that happened and, uh, I was just, yeah there's a story there. So when I came home, I shut myself down in my house for like three months, not totally, but I just, yeah. just wrote same, same, same way, just verbal, you know, yeah. diarrhea, no respect for anything, anything. And then, and the same thing I did with Appel is I would share the early drafts with family and friends. Mm. And I would say, you know, if, if you were willing, I'd appreciate it, have a read and tell me if it has potential. Like, are you interested in the, the core of the story? Mm-hmm. If yes, I'll continue her. If you know it's boring, well then I'll, I'll shut her down, you know? So I did the same thing with Seville. Um, so my dad's always been a huge help on that, uh, because I trust his voice, mm. um, or his eye and, uh, friends and family. Um, and I tried to send it to different people that would typically read different type of stuff. So you get a, right. a wide range of, cause when you tell a story, you can't please everybody. You never um, will. And then, you know, if you get your demographic, that's former military or, or into that genre, they kind of need something different than someone that's only interested, you know, typically doesn't read that. They don't want to get dumbed or I can't dumb it down too much to, right. to ruin it for one group. But at the same time, I got to explain some things for the others. Right. So you got to find that nice middle ground. So I use that to gauge. Um, and then I just, you know, focus on spots. Say, Hey, I like that. You got to tell me more here. So within three months I had that story, um, pretty much done. And then same thing, I hired two different editors that had, um, their strengths and certain things to help me get it to where it had to be. And the big one on that is because editors cost money. 
Yeah. So time is money. Yeah. Um, I had learned because Wilfred Laurier, uh, published Appel. So I knew nothing obviously about the publishing world and I was fortunate that I think it was through, it was a friend of my father's who had uh, flown 104s with him and he worked at RMC. Um, and he heard from my dad that I was working on it. He said, Hey, you know, do you mind asking Joel if, if, uh, if I could read his, uh, his manuscript? He had, uh, he had actually published a couple of books, um, about, uh, I think it was the Canadian, um, fighter pilots during the second world war. Okay. Flyboys. Anyway. Yeah. Um, nice man. Anyway, he read it and he said, yeah, Joel, I think you got something here. Do you mind if I show it to my, to my publisher? So I had never, I didn't shop out or look, I knew nothing about. about oh, that's that, awesome. Know? Um, and they actually put me in touch with, they said, yeah, I think Wilfred Laurier would like this. And they did, but they, how it works is, so Wilfred Laurier took it on, um, they worked on it for a year cause they, they do their stuff that's beyond my, you know, like sure. the tents and all the, all the stuff that goes with it. Yeah. And, um, but basically you sign over your story to them. So they own copyright. Um, okay. and which is fine. Yeah. Like it didn't, it didn't matter to me. They give you, you know, the little percentage that you get as, as the author, if there's any sales, that was fine. It wouldn't, this book was never about money. What happens um, when the movie's made? It's a little more, I think it's 50, 50. Okay. But yeah, I, I can't Fair say enough. that. But anyway, but yeah. you know what I mean? That wasn't, but I, I learned a lot. Um, and then the onus is on the author to market that book. Once it's published, it's you, the author that's got to really? get, get out there. Yeah. I mean, if it's, it's, you know, I'm not, yeah, is what it's it not is. Harry Potter. You don't have, you know what I mean? Like this is a different, <laughs> yes. Yep. So I have to get onto the Jockos yep. type of thing, you know, podcast, get on social media, which pre-book, I didn't have a Facebook, I had nothing. So I had to learn navigate that war, um, learning how to put yourself out there and, and try to, you know, draw a, a, attention to your, to your story, well, but it's a, tough. It's uh, that's really difficult. That, it is, that, okay. That's a tightrope yeah, because yeah. you don't want to talk about things that would, um, spoil the plot in the book, so yeah. to speak. You don't want to do things that are going to be offside for the Legion. Yeah. Um, you're, yeah. you've got all these different goals in mind, but you still want to be able to promote it out there. And you don't want to do it in some flashy way where it's no. uh, going to be looked at. Um, yeah. Like ego, like, oh, look at this guy. Right. Here's a story about me, which, you know, it is, but it's not, it could be any legionnaire. But yeah, so I, I struggled with that, but I learned and I learned a lot with Appel. And then when Civil came up, um, you know, I had actually, I sent a, an early draft to a Canadian uh, publisher out East that, uh, deals in this genre, more of a, more as a litmus test yeah. to see. And, uh. They, they, they were interested and want to take it on. And I had initially said, well, what about, you know, partnership? I'm not going to give, cause in Seville, I obviously begin the book with the last paragraph from Appel. Mm -hmm. I had to ask Wilfred Laurier for approval to okay. use, you know what I mean? Which yeah, is weird, yeah. which is fine. They were, they were great about it yeah, and yeah. all the you know, respect, but, uh, it was just weird that I had to ask someone else approval to use my, you know, yeah, no. but, um, my business partner at Ravenhill, Keith, we said, well, why don't we you know, things have changed a lot. You have that first book that was out by a reputable publisher. It's, it's done well. Yeah. Why don't we self-publish, um, which you can in this day and age to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And so I created, for Appel, I had created a nonprofit called Legion Engineered where yeah. my small percentage of, um, author proceeds would go to that. So it wasn't about me. So what I did is I just, we created, we made that a, you know, a not-for-profit incorporation, whatever. And yep. that was the, the publisher, LE projects, which is Legion engineered. And so we, we went through the effort and we said, okay, we'll do this ourselves. So, but there's a cost incurred, right? right. So 
there's not a lot of money in books anyway. So it, it's going to be how much are you going to spend? What's the objective? So we had a number in mind. Seville is a bit shorter than Appel. Um, it's probably rougher. It's a little more edgier. Um, it's different. I, I, I like it per se. I mean, Appel was educational. It was a little, you know, this one's a little more, um, yeah. What? Harder uh, as in. Yeah. It's, I mean, so post Appel, Seville, I do the flying, you know, I'm newly married, young family, doing the Iraq, Afghanistan, Algeria kind of stuff. It has its, its challenges and yes. it probably, you know, cost me a marriage to a certain extent. Um, the transition back and forth wasn't easy. That's life. You know, I mean, there's people out there that have a lot, a lot harder. Um, but I also got to see, you know, the war on terror. I saw, you know, the Americans, the Brits, all these different countries out there slogging away, going at it where I was, I was, I was a part of it, but I wasn't in the mm. front line down range with these guys. And as a soldier who, you know had done my time in the Legion and unfortunately I didn't really have, you know, I saw combat, but not at the level that these guys were mm. and girls were seeing. It was, it was an eye opener. It was good. Um, so I wanted, I felt maybe I could share, share that, um, that but, respect, but also that experience. So. And it's grittier. Yeah. And, and I really it like it's, yeah. the realness that you get yeah. out of it. I did mean. Did you see the difference? Did you feel oh, the yeah. difference? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Cause it's. And I like the blemishes, right? Like yeah. he, you're okay talking about the, yeah. the areas that other people with more ego might, might have a difficult time yeah. talking about. Fair one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's, and that's something I said to, uh, to my, um, to editors is I can't, let's not change the past. So I might write something down in the regret and say, yeah, because you can easily change things, right? Totally like, can. You're younger and you're, you're an idiot. It's, it's easy. Anyway, so <laughs> that was a big one. And then when you pull the trigger, it sent. And anyway, so we decided to do ourselves, um, the audiobook, which I think that was a big one for me. Um, so Wilfred Laurier, they went the audiobook uh, route yeah. and the th one of the first three books that they did was, was Appel. Mm. And when they mentioned that to me, I said, that's, you know, it's cool, but I think typically people like to hear the author. Right. Which you did in Seville. Yeah. So they didn't, um, they went with a professional company that has professional narrators mm. and I had, I had respectfully asked them, I said, listen, well, if you go that route, that's fine. Um, obviously it's your prerogative. You can yeah. do what you wish. Please avoid using a French Canadian narrative for the French. <laughs> and that's yeah. not, that's, no, just, that makes sense. but it's just because Legion yeah. French is not Quebec French. It's a different sound, different twang to it. And unfortunately they went, they went with a gentleman who, you know, this is no bang on him or judge. He did an excellent job. He reached out a couple of times. In fact, I think he listened to Jocko to get a sense of my tone and, mm. and all that kind of stuff. And he's Anglophone, uh, Francophone. So his English is, is act like it doesn't. Yeah. So, but when he says the, like, deuxième régiment de parachutiste, the rep, it's got that Quebec uh, twang. Yes. Um, Hard which, to get rid of that. Yeah. Hopefully he doesn't hear this because it's, it's not <laughs> his fault. And I respect he did a great job, but it's he just did. not, it's not Legion French, right? So whatever. That's, they did what they did, but for Seville, that's what we, we said that I would obviously do it. So we invested and I think, I don't know, I think it listens better than it reads. And I typically write that way. 
I mean, it's just the voice in my head. So, so, so I actually, I listened to it cause yeah. I was, uh, in airports on flights. So I was just back and forth from Halifax there. And so that was, uh, and I've taken notes on my phone as I'm going through, I got a whole ton of notes here oh, too. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, I, I really enjoyed that and having done voiceover work in the past for courses, I can only imagine the oh. amount of retakes and time dude, and dude. were you I'll doing this into yourself that. or? So, so here we go. So I, I found a studio in Vancouver that does that type of thing. Um, and, uh, I said to them, the books, you know, 60 plus thousand words, yeah. typically how long would that take to, to record? So they came back with a quote. Yeah. So I went in and blew that fucking quote out of the water. <laughs> um, but what was interesting is we made some mistakes. I mean, obviously publishers know what they're doing and there's a reason why they exist and they do it and us doing it ourselves, mm. you know, we made some mistakes and, um. So in fact, the, the producer made a couple B reels where I'm reading and then I hit a typo. I'm like, at this point it's already, yeah, we had, uh, <laughs> we actually released the wrong, like when the actual paperback book went yeah. live, we were supposed to do a test print and there was some switchology area on our yeah. part and we went live and Oops. so yeah, a handful of books went out that weren't the actual edited, anyway, <laughs> right? That's Love why it. we're not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm reading, so I'm in the studio reading. And then I'd run into these typos and I'd be like, mid sentence, I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? So he made a B reel where I'm talking and I would lose my shit, you know, or <laughs> you talk too fast, you yeah. mumble, you say a word wrong. So he would, you know, say, okay, stop, let's, let's do this. So anyway, we basically doubled the budget on the, uh, so we're going to. So easy to do. We're going to have to sell a lot of audiobooks to, to recover that one. But well, hey. Well, the audiobook is awesome. I appreciate I, that. I yeah. should say that. Yeah. Yeah. I was happy with the end result. Yeah, no, it yeah. was really good. Yeah, little things I found like how you're sitting in a chair will change the inflection oh, of how it comes yeah. across. Words that I thought I said properly, yeah. they're like, it's firearms, not firearms. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I'm a, a mumbler by trade. Yeah. So yeah, the big focus on, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a lot. And there's a reason why they use professionals. Yeah. And to come back, it makes sense why Wilfred Laurie did that. Cause sure. it'd be cost effective. You know, it gets done fairly fast and yeah. properly. He's, he's drilled, you know, he knows what he's doing. It's not me making a mock <laughs> but whatever you live and learn and yeah. Yeah, I'm happy with the end results. So it's when I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's cool, man. It's really good. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to look at a couple of things that I wrote down as I went through here. One of them. Okay. So. I think uh, you get the sense of humor too easier. I mean, it's. You do because you put your inflection on yeah, it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Whereas on paper, it's like, is he serious or. Yeah. Uh, Cause I am, you know, I do humor is a big part of my, I might be dry and, but yeah, if people don't pick up on it. I've yeah. ruined a lot of really early relationships with the uh, girls on text because they don't get my humor. Well, that's they a, think, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> that's why emoticons are How born, I think. Yeah. Like I said that and there's a smiley face because it's yeah. supposed to be funny, right? And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you, you tend to lose that unless you're really good at the written word of which I'm not. Same. Uh, you, Same, yeah. you really need to be able to have that yep. nonverbal. This is why doing podcasts in person is so yeah. much better. 100%. Agreed. Yeah. The paraverbal. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, the second book was totally different. Um, but at least I had the lessons learned and experience from the first to draw from, and it was probably as a result quicker and, yeah. you know, on our terms. So we'll see. Well, I, I took a few notes as I was going through there. And one of them that I has uh, stuck out was, uh, George Albert Ravenhill. Victoria yes, sir, Cross. Yeah. yeah. Something about six iron shillings. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. He was the, and um, he was like silver core is named after my grandfather, silver, Armando, my other grandfather, Cornelius Bader, silver core, put them together. Very cool. 
Yep. You've got a relation here yes. to George Ravenhill, which you've named your company after. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, Ravenhill on my mom's side, uh, brave man, um, Boer War, First World War, uh, won the VC, um, you know, Crazy. survived, which is, you know, wasn't posthumous. So that, and those, and back in the day, if you're given a, a VC and you survived, it's gotta be yeah. legit. Yeah. Um, but you know, he went on to serve in the First World War, got thrown into a, a like a penal regiment for disciplinary issues. Um, and then he lived in Birmingham, uh, him and his wife had, you know, quite a few kids and he wasn't being paid what he felt was his, his fair amount. Mm. So he was stealing, um, steel from the yards to sell, to pay for food. Okay. It was like six shillings worth, whatever. And anyway, he was caught okay. and uh, he was one of eight VC recipients that had the VC taken back by the queen, uh, back oh, in the day. Man. Like it's, they were reinstalled, but he was one of those original eight. Um, anyway, at, at a certain point they had to make the decision to send, uh, three other kids to Canada to be orphaned because mm. they couldn't afford. Anyway, he died at 49, destitute, obviously, you know. Sheesh. Alcohol is probably involved. Yeah. You know, you know they, that would be yeah. definitely, I mean, if you served in France and all that. Yeah. There's PTA. Anyway, sad story of a brave man who served his country and was kind of left to the side and wasn't, which is something that, you know, I take to heart, I respect, but it's also family. It's sad. He's got like a little, little marker with a number on it of his grave. Yeah. Um, so when my partner Keith and I were, you know, discussing starting a company. Um, actually I had come up with a name and then I reached out to Keith and say, hey, let's, you know, you interested mm -hmm. in doing this with me? Ravenhill was obviously the name that I went with for, for obvious reasons. It was just. Well, isn't that cool? Respectful. Yeah. 49 years old. He's got his things, ups and downs, oh. but, but he's now the name is living on. Yeah. Which no, is no. hundred percent. Um, respect. Yeah. And I, you know, these are real soldiers, you know? Yeah. I mean, I. Yeah, I don't, what do you say to that, right? There's these guys that really fucking went at it. Yeah. And paid the price, it's sad. So yeah, so respect to George. Um, so, okay, so Steve Mitchell, Andy McNabb. Yep. You and he crossed paths in the green zone. You talk about that a little bit yeah, in, yeah. In, yeah. in the book. Uh, why do you think he used a pseudonym and why did you choose not to? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, to be honest, I've never, I've never thought of it. Um. I'm thinking maybe for his professional life, mm. um, trying to just disconnect his, you know, efforts as a security consultant yeah. on that side of stuff, being XSS, whatever. And then an author, I don't know. I mean, obviously I can't speak for him. That'd no. be my, my only guess. Um. But did it cross your mind? Maybe well, you, you should think it'd work against him, right? I mean, yeah. at that point with Bravo 20, you're, you know, you're, everyone knows who you are. Right. Um, but then he goes from that's with nonfiction theoretically, right? right. Well, there, and then he goes fiction. So I don't know if that's theoretically, the, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, myself, I don't know. I just never went, uh, I just put Did, my name on it. I didn't really think about too much. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, so you also had the option, the Legion's famous for having the option of people having new names yep, when they enough. leave and yeah. having uh, their passport. If you got a French passport, you would have been able to keep your Canadian as well, wouldn't you? Or would you have to renounce it? No, I think you'd be able to keep it. Um, I don't think the, I mean, the, now you can, I don't think the laws were any different back then. In retrospect, I wish I had. Okay. Just for European Union work, every right. travel, it would be, you know, um, but I didn't at the time I was stubborn and I'm Canadian, you know, whatever. It's a pride it thing what or what? Pardon me? Was it a pride thing? I think so. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Proud Canadian. Concerning, that's yeah. what I am. Yeah. That being said, I haven't, you know, yeah. 
whatever. There's a lot to be said for being stubborn. Yeah. I think we talked about that before yeah, a little true. bit. But, um, yeah, the Legion, you know, you can, I, I kept my name in the Legion. There was no reason for me to change my name. Yeah. It's not illegal for a Canadian to join a foreign military. Others yeah. it is. So yes. they change that name for that reason. Um, it's just an admin formality so they can give them documentation and stuff. Um, if someone right. else figures out your new name and they ask the Legion, like is Bob, who's now Charles, is he in the, they'll have to say yes, he's here. Gotcha. Uh, it's not for nefarious reasons. It's just documentation gotcha. type thing. But I kept my name and then, um, yeah, it, uh, yeah. So there's a interesting story about hearing protection. When, oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Like an IED, something yeah. going off. That was, uh, yeah. Coming out of, um, down South. Um, yeah. So we had, you know, we're doing low profile PSD with, uh, Iraqis. So my second time back into Baghdad, things are kicking off, uh, the jihadists, this, you know, Bathists, wherever you want to call them, the insurgents are definitely more active. Mm. Um, and up to then they had been focusing their efforts on the American military or the, the early parts of the, the new Iraqi army or the police. Um, and there was a lot of PSD teams starting to ramp up in country, mm. um, you know, from different countries, different companies. And again, I can't comment for, for everybody and it's just my view, but I got the gut feeling that a lot of these guys and these teams were, had served, they're now civilians, but they had served in the military pre 9-11. So mm. they hadn't really done much. Right. Now they find themselves in a war zone and they're they're out to prove something for themselves. Sure. And unfortunately, you know, innocent Iraqi civilians were being shot. Right. For many a reasons, lack of due care and attention, not necessarily their fault, but guys were just happy to, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, so as I would, and that's something I always do when I put myself in, in a scenario, country, what have you, is I put myself in their other people's shoes. If I was a young mm. Iraqi, did the same in Africa. If I was, you know, whatever in, in Afghanistan, if I was one of them, what would I be doing? And, you know, kind of watching what was going around me, I would have done the same. And what they were doing was the Bathists and the, the Jihadists, whatever. They said, let's just lay off the military for a while and we're going to go after the PSD teams because these mm. guys are fucking scum, mm. right? Um, in their, in their view. Um, and fair dues. So at this time in country, everyone was, um, overt. So driving around in the big right. trucks and pushing through traffic and, you know, so we went low profile. So what we did is we bought local vehicles, um, put run flat tires on them, try to up armor them a bit as we can around the doors. And it would be two vehicle moves. So two expats, um, so I worked with mostly Brits, some Kiwis and Aussies and the rest were Iraqi uh, teammates. So we'd have two cars, um, we were armed with AKs, PKM, and, uh, we had their shitty Makarov pistol too. Um, <laughs> And we would just try to blend into the, uh, the traffic, which Baghdad was just chocker block. It was just a traffic, traffic yeah. jam. And our biggest fear was obviously we're stuck in traffic, trying to blend in as if a, uh, a military call sign pulled up beside us or another PSD team. And they look down and they see an Iraqi sitting there with an AK on their lap. Right. No questions asked. So we would have a laminated, uh, union jack. And as soon as they did, we just put those up in the window. Um, same thing for. And that, that. worked. It would. Yeah. yeah. And you get a lot of weird looks. I yeah. remember like one of the early mill units pull up beside us and they're like, what, you know, like, cause <laughs> that was somewhat new. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but that w it was a handful and then working with, I get into it with, uh, 
in Seville. I ended up actually punching one of my Iraqis out. Mm. Um, it was, it was a, it was a handful, um, an eye opener. Um, but yeah. Um, and then I went up to, uh, they sent me up to Crete. Yeah. Um, and there I took over a, uh, all expat, uh, PSD team and we were supporting the, uh, U.S. Corps of Engineers, um, looking for weapons of mass destruction, which we never found surprisingly. And, uh. Where were they? Where yeah, were exactly. they? Where were they hidden? And, um, <laughs> anyway, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, blowing up old ordnance. and what had happened, uh, early days of the first Gulf and then the second one, they had bombed all these, uh, cause Tikrit is where Saddam was from and actually where he was found his, uh, guard and a lot of huge, uh, installations were built there where they had bunkers, actually the French and Brits build them bunkers where they would store all the armament for the Iran Iraq war. The Americans bombed them and left them unsecured. And a lot of those shells that, you know, got yeah. thrown, didn't explode, were recovered and used as IEDs for, you know. Right. So they went in after that and then started cleaning up, you know, but unfortunately that probably killed a lot of American soldiers leaving those, uh, those places unsecured. But mm -hmm. so we, I did that for a while and, um, you know, we had, my driver lost a leg to an anti-tank mine. We lost a couple of guys. EFPs were starting to make their, their appearance mm -hmm. from the Iranians and they were, cause we started to get issued, um, actually brand new, uh, four three fifties that were built here in Canada. Um, but those EFPs would just go right, mm. right fucking through it. Um, so I was like, I was starting, my son was born at that point young and I was kind of looking at the, the risk versus the reward. What was happening in country? I was like, this place is a fucking shit hole. How, how um, old was your son? Just like. Now he's uh, 17. But no, at the time he was. Just born, like newborn year type thing. It's nothing that really brings your own mortality into a focal point than having kids, eh? No, hundred percent. Yeah. It's funny and how leave, that works. Leaving them was, was tough. And I, yeah, yeah. I get it. That's, so it was, uh, yeah, a big factor, but, um, then, uh, armor group had the, they're awarded the, uh, foreign Commonwealth office, the Brit foreign Commonwealth uh, contract in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, and they're only taking, uh, Brits at the time, but then it opened up to Commonwealth. So I was always interested in doing that, having read, you know, read books and watch all the documentaries on the, uh, you know, the Russians in Afghanistan and obviously the war had been on, going on for a while. So I was keen to get over there. So, um, yeah, I went over, uh, he had to commit for a year. So I went back to flying for a while. So all this time I'd, you know, I'd fly the summer's fires and then come yeah. back, do this. And, um, so I went over to Afghanistan. Initially I was up, we were up in, uh, Kabul supporting the Brit police that were men doing the mentorship program for okay. their, um, narcotics police. Yeah. Uh, so we'd, we'd fly around. We had a, it was a South African company that had a C-130 Herc painted in UN colors, but it wasn't UN. And we'd, <laughs> cause we were embassy, we had, um, nice kit. Best, yeah. best we could buy in the market. We had nice, uh, new armoreds, uh, the latest ECM technology, which put out a electronic countermeasure bubble around the, um, the yeah. vehicle. So that if they try to set off an ID by, by phone or what have you, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go through. Yeah. Uh, we had the, um, HK 360, we had the, uh, the Glock and the mini me. So we had nice, nice tools and we'd load this, our armors into the, into the Herc and fly off to, you know, uh, Kunduz, all these different areas. And we go there for a couple of days. We'd stay in the American uh, SF bases and we go out and they'd mentor these, uh, these Afghan, uh, police set checkpoints and all kinds yeah. of stuff. And then, um, the Brits obviously controlled Helmand area, Helmand province. Mm -hmm. They were building a, uh, a PRT in Lash, which a PRT, which was like their provincial rebuilding, rebuilding team. So okay. they, they would 
build these, they take over small compounds in these towns in, uh, in Helmand. And then that's where the Brits would go uh, and do their thing. Um, so the FCO had, uh, their main guy, Tom Tugendot, who was actually just, uh, in the elections there, he, he, he lost, but he was one of the, uh, one huh. of the names to be the prime minister. And anyway, he was a young, uh, well, Paul FCO politician, but he was ex, uh, reservist Brit Mill, served with the SBS, uh, in Iraq and did some stuff and had actually been involved in a, in a pretty good contact in Afghanistan, but he was the advisor to the governor Helmand. Okay. So the FCO needed, uh, three teams from armor group to go down and live in the uh, PRT with, uh, with Tom and some of his, his people. But uh, at that time it was the, uh, Parareg, uh, that were, they did six month tours. So it was a Parareg. And then, so we went down, um, I took, uh, leadership of a team, um, and we went in and, and learned our trade. And basically we would take Tom to his compound. So the governor of, of, F, of, of Helmand had a compound not far from the PRT. Uh, which was secured by the Afghan army. And he had a little, uh, a building in there on its own. And we basically drive Tom, most of our day, days were that. We'd drive there, it was a two-story building. Tom would go into his office. We'd put a BG at the front of his office just to make sure, you know, mm-hmm. no one was coming and going that didn't need to be. And we would sit outside the building just beside his windows in the armoreds all, all day. Mm. Um, and uh, then... Obviously things, this is 2006. Right. Things were not going well for the Brits and Helmand. Right. Then the general, uh, the two star, he'd come down, ex, uh, SAS guy, nice man. And we would have him. So we would drive from the PRT to the governor's compound. Cause they would do late evenings at the governor's residence, discussing what was, what was happening. Sangin, Goreshk. Mm. Um, cause the Brits were having a hard time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I just remember we'd have this two star general on the back of our armored, it's about a 15 minute drive from the, uh, the compound to the PRT and man, a good, uh, an RPG seven man would, would do the trick. Like it's a hell of a target, you know? Yeah. I was always nervous with him inside because it would, and that's, that's a big thing. I was always wondering, when are they going to, you know, when are you going to take a run, man? This is, that's, this is where it's at. We're back and forth the same. Right. It's got to play in the mind. We only had like three different routes we could theoretically use. Like they're, and your enemy's never dumb. Yeah. Right. They're, they're more than capable. And, uh, so it was always a waiting game. Like when are they going to, but, um. In the end, we had a suicide bomber take a run at, uh, the governor of, of Helmand, uh, young 17 year old, uh, um, Pakistani boy that they brought up across mm. the border, put a fake uniform. He made his way through the checkpoints and walked up and then detonate himself about 10 meters from 10, 15 meters from us. But he, he did it with our Afghan counterparts that were standing around their, uh, their technicals, you know, their blue mm. show them. And for me, that was again, another eye opener. You know, how do you, how do you combat that? What 17 year old kid feels that's, what were you doing at 17? At 17, I was thinking about. Not that. Boobs. You know? <laughs> there you go. I wasn't thinking about strapping a vest on and blowing myself up for a cause. So anyway, right. it was, uh, again, it was at that point I'd done a year. I'd seen Afghanistan, you know, there's some beautiful countryside. I'd seen these young men and women doing their thing, which, you know, I respected, but it was, it was time to move on. And, uh, I kind of got away from that. KBR built, uh, an LNG project in uh, North Africa and they asked, um, a couple of us that we wanted to come on for the security side of stuff. And I ended up doing that straight for eight years, built this LNG mega train. Wow. And we had a twin star, a French, we hired a, a French twin star to move our people from the airport to the camps back and forth. Yeah. And so I was in the helicopter all the time and I started to miss it. Yeah. And, uh, 
that was about eight years ago. And I said, fucking, I came back to Canada and flew full time. And I've been with, um, Mustang. I did the Ebola stuff for the old company I worked for. Um. He had an Ebola scare, didn't you? Yeah, not really. It was more <laughs> comical than anything, but, uh, and then I've been with, yeah, Mustang for coming up in eight years now. Okay. Full time. You know, we do fires in the summer, heli skiing in the winter. So it's, yeah, it's, it's come, it's come together. Okay. I'm behind compared to a lot of my colleagues. In what um, way? Experience wise, just time. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the guys I fly with, the type of flying we do, um, you know, the summer we went 212 with the tanks in BC and then heli skiing out of Revelstoke with the 205s and A-stars mm-hmm. in the winter. Um, you know, a lot of guys, they start at 18, 19, 20. Right. I started at 29, 30, you know, so I'm, when it comes to time in the seat, I'm about halfway compared to them. It's, uh, and you can't, you can't compensate. So I'm always working harder, struggling compared to some of my. Yeah. It'd be a lot of work. It is, but it's all. It's kind of like learning how to drive a car early in life as opposed to later and the way the brain works and how you pick things up. You're always going to have that little bit of an advantage having those. 100%. Yeah. Years on the early yeah. side, as opposed to the, yeah. the end side. But no regrets. It's, no. it's all worked out. Yeah. So okay, obviously events like that and, and the, the earmuff one I was thinking about was, uh, firing inside the vehicle and yes. thinking, okay, yeah, hearing yeah. protection might've so been So we went that. off on, uh, yeah. So <laughs> we were coming out of, it was down South, um, where the Brits were. What's the name of, um, the airport there? Um, anyway, we were leaving. So we had. With our Iraqis and that's where we went off on the, we would, we'd put them on the range and we, we teach them. So PSD work with the vehicles. So, you know, reaction to combat or to, to contact, you know, right, left, rear, yeah. um, getting away from the vehicles, yada, yada, yada. So we would, we spent a lot, well, as much time as we could on the range with them to get them proficient and safe. Cause me being in a, in a vehicle with, uh, you know, three Iraqis pumping rounds out the windows. Last thing I need is an ND or the side of my head getting blown off no. by, by mistake. Right. So we were, I was a stickler on that and, uh, that was a big one, um, safety, but getting them in the vehicle, doing their stoppages, mag changes, communicating. And of course during training, we had our, our earmuffs on and yeah. it was good. And then real word, we're out there and stupid mistake, but never really anticipated. And we, they took a shot at us with an IED missed, but then there's some smaller fire. So I said, at this point we're on the route Tampa, which is the main highway past the killers. Like we were past, but I just, out of interest, I said to you know, one of the guys on the left, like open up, put rounds on that berm in the distance yeah. where, and sure enough, he unloaded his AK mag and we didn't have any, I was like, holy fuck. It was like <laughs> on the shopping list at the PX was a good set of, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Things you just, yeah. you're focused and you never thought about it and yeah, it made a, made a hell of a racket inside that. Uh, anyway. So. Those are some of the, the obvious things that you never think about, right? Yeah. Obvious in shit. hindsight, yeah, right? When your exactly. ears are ringing, you got tinnitus now, but yeah. 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 Um, the mental toll that this can take, and I know a lot yeah. of people will, um, uh, mental health has become a lot more commonplace and talked yeah. about in a, um, in a much more positive way. It's interesting how you're talking about feeling bad leaving the Legion because they put this time into you and, yep. uh, there's this level of, um, um, I, I find it a lot with others when they're leaving the army, leaving the, um, air force, whatever it might be, there's this team that they feel like they might be disappointing if they leave. And there's this, um, uh, sense of obligation. And yeah. a lot of times people go out and they somehow start gravitating their way back, but it's never going to be the same when they yep. come on back. True. I, I, I got to wonder if 
if that process of uh, building someone in and having a, a very rigid out process as well would be a huge help to the, um, the mental health of soldiers as they leave. I don't know. It's, um, uh, yeah. the, the PTSD side of things and the stress seems to be, uh, from my observations, a, a reframing of, or how people interpret things that have happened before. Yep. True. And if you come back and you're greeted like a hero and warrior and everything you did was well and good, yep. the, um, uh, the mental health aspect seems to be diminished compared to those who, uh, don't share that. It's contrary to their, uh, personal or religious beliefs. So society says that they're, uh, they're now on the outside of things. True. Yep. Um, and I, and I guess like obviously without delving into your observations where you're at, but on the, uh, military side, formal French foreign legion, you're in there and you come out, there's a level of acceptance on the private military contractor side. Does that get a lot more great? Does that get more difficult to, uh, um, to navigate? Yeah. Um, that's a tough question. Mm-hmm. I think obviously as you make reference to, I mean, everyone reacts differently to their environment and what's going on around them. Mm. Um, you know, coming out of the Legion, I think the way they vet and they take on people and the training and the discipline and stuff, I think once you're kind of thrown into the shit, a lot of those people are, you know, somewhat prepared for it. Mm. I think in the Western world where it's all squeaky, feely, happy, love, (laughs) we don't prepare our our young men and women for what they're about to encounter. And that's, Mm. has a huge bearing on the amount of, um, that being said, there's guys in the Legion that suffer from PSC. I mean, it is what it is, but I think you need to prepare, uh, people properly. If you're going to ask them to do a nasty job, you got to put them through the test. And that's why, you know, Appel was kind of, cause, um, um, the former, uh, CEO of the PPCLI, uh, General Crabb had written a, a small forward and he had written a, read an early version. And the reason I think he liked it is because I kind of make reference to that is, you know, the Legion's discipline and the harsh training isn't, they're doing you a favor. They're trying to show you, do you want to, do you want to be here? Is this for you? You know, right. if you can't handle this, you, you know, you have no place in, in combat. And then do you want someone beside you that shouldn't be there? Mm-hmm. Um, now going into the, the private military type stuff, we were all ex, you know, um, military. So we had our background. So theoretically and armor group, you know, they do their vetting. Um, and then later on, a lot of these guys were getting out of the Brit mill. So they had done Afghanistan, Iraq, mm-hmm. and we didn't have to do the time and country like your, your other soldiers did. You know, we were two months on one month off. Um, I think the challenge for us more so was that back and forth coming out of a, an environment like Lashkarga, two days later, you're in oh. Langley with your, your, your wife and young son. That would be tough. You know what I mean? Whereas not that it's easier, but you know, guys that do, you know, six months and they come back for their week off, it's not easier, but it's not quite as, it's a one-off. Like they do it once, whereas we're back and forth all the time. And, and you I, wouldn't want to shut it off when you come home, would you? Well, I don't think you can shut off. And that's, I think I I mentioned Seville is, you know, like driving back from the airport, my wife would pick me up and we'd be in traffic and she'd be like, as everyone does, well, you know, when you're stopped at a a light or a stop sign, you, you're right behind the other vehicle. Yeah. Whereas in my world that I just left, you need that space to, to get out of jobs if shit kicks off. Right. So I'd be like, and then I'd be looking at, you know, 
a, a vehicle parked off to the side. I'm like, you know, ID, uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, dead dogs, they would fill them with a 105 right. shell on the side. So you can't switch that off. Um, but you just, you deal with it. And, you know, I, I was, I was fortunate and, you know, in my, you know, touch wood in my career and stuff, I haven't really experienced anything that's out of the norm. People have mm. experienced a lot more than me. So I've been able, I'm sure it's, it's definitely affected me, but I don't, you know, I don't suffer. I wasn't right. beating the shit out of my wife or, you know what I mean? Like right. as unfortunately that. It happens. Yeah. Like the, was it the 82nd airborne? They shut down the completed regiment because the amount of murder suicides, you know, post. Right. It's, it's a legit, you know, issue. So I think our challenge was probably more, um, and that's something I think the militaries look at is the counseling for families that back and forth, because I would leave as, as you know, many soldiers do and whoever's staying home, be it the, the male or the female, they're left behind to run the, the household, mm-hmm. deal with the children, get everything done. You can't expect to come back and just like become the, the alpha male or whatever, right? No. You need to kind of just slowly. And I think there's a lack of preparedness for that, where they say, Hey, listen, right. you know, as a family now you've been separated, your partner now has been in an environment that's, you know, highly, you know, kinetic and there's going to be some stress and some emotion and it's going to take them a while to, to switch off and mm-hmm. just relax, give them a bit of leeway, but vice versa, Joel, when you're coming back to, to Langley, just wind your neck in and just relax. She's, you know, she had the, she's been running the household for the last whatever, just do a thing. And then, you know, unfortunately I make reference, you know, you've been home for two weeks and you're driving back to the airport and you're, you're gutted cause it was a bad experience and that you got your two yeah. year old in the back. You're like, fuck, I'm going back to yeah. that, that, that I remember the most as being, um, challenging and perhaps some regrets, Yeah, but that's life, right? You it know, is so. life. And you know, in retrospect post, you know, post the book and I, I get into it. It's interesting because I have a good relationship with my, she's remarried and has a son and we have a a good relationship where we co-parent well, our two kids. I like her husband. He respects my place. I respect his place. I like their, their son. I think it's, we're lucky in that manner. Yes. You know, the kids, it's all about the kids. So we've, we've, we've done well, but, uh, it was funny when I, when I wrote the story, I, I reached out to her and I said, listen, I'm, you know, I got <laughs> the story. It obviously dwells, jumps into our, our marriage and it's, yeah. you know, it's not about that, but it's obviously has its place. You know, um, if you, if you want. You can read it, you can comment, but, um, and I'll, you know, yeah. but if you don't, and then it comes out, you gotta, you can't say it's too late. Right. Right. Anyway. So that was an interesting, something I never really, yeah, yeah, never really considered. And then her, her husband read it. Actually, I don't think she ever read it. Yeah. That was a weird scenario too. Like, (laughs) holy shit. You know what I mean? Something you never, you never consider. But, um, yeah, the guys I worked with in Arbor Group and stuff, um, I think to answer your question, we. We weren't in the shit, like, like, like we'd fly into Goreshk and sang in with the, the Paris and the last six months I was there, it was the Royal Marines and they were just getting the shit kicked yeah. out of the man. And, you know, we'd fly back with a dead, dead guy in the Chinook and yeah. I was just more humbled by these young kids and what they were experiencing. So I, you know what? I had nothing to complain about. And if I felt sorry for myself, it's like, shut the fuck up, man. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all the same, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a number of people who, uh, ask questions or oh, yeah. something on social media. Some of them you've actually already kind of answered. Okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, talking about, uh, 
coming back and not being able to switch off. You had a, uh, a public transit and maybe they got to read the book for oh, that one. Yeah. That was kind of a, uh, the bus. Yeah. <laughs> the bus incident. The bus incident. Yeah. That uh, is, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, lucky everything turned out as it ought to and we're, um. Yeah. I was, uh, there was a, um, a gentleman that was sitting beside us that had watched the whole, so luckily I had someone that collaborated for, yeah. Um, do we, are we going to tell that story? Or if you want to, yeah, it's yeah, up to you. So I was just back from Iraq, me and my wife, we had a, a condo in Kits and so I was on my three weeks off, I think at that point. And my, the guy I flew for, um, called me, he's based out of Calgary and, uh, he said, Joel, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm just watching Sopranos or whatever. Yeah. Was, you know, it's like, can I ask a favor? Show. I was like, yeah, by all means. So he said, I, his brother, who's a big, uh, construction guy was putting in a, a bid to do the soil reclamation at the, the airport up in Fort Nelson, okay. BC and government bid, you had to put in a certified check at the cert, certain time for, you know, whatever, however that works. It just shows that you're, yeah. you're a legit company, you know, um, it's not a bribe. It's just <laughs> part of the. Not a bribe. The pro, yeah, it's a pro, clear, yeah, not exactly. a it's not a bribe, it's uh, yeah, part of their, <laughs> anyway, he said, it has to be at the, uh, the government building by noon. I'm going to send a, uh, an envelope by Air Canada Cargo. Do you mind grabbing it and dropping it off? I said, yeah, by all means, too easy. And my, my wife at the time worked at a golf course, not far from the airport. Okay. Um, so she dropped me off at Air Canada Car. I grabbed this, this envelope and I walked down to the main bus station, which is by the old Delta hotel. Yep. And there was two or three buses, rush hour. So there's a seat at the very back. So I sit down side seat. Um, and what I remember is I look across and there's an attractive girl and she had a Russian book. She was like studying. And then next I see this like leg twitching beside her and I look over and it's like a guy in a hoodie and he's mm -hmm. like, you know, just kind of looks like skateboard type of tire, but you know, tweaking, you know, tweaking. Just, and then within, I don't know, whatever it was seconds, he stood up and went to rip the envelope out of my hand. Like I kind of had it on my yeah. two hands holding it. So that, so my reaction was just to stand up, pull the envelope back and then <laughs> put, kind of put my hand on his chest and, and push him down back to him. So I was like, dude, what the fuck, you know, yeah. why are you touching my shit? Like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm weirded out. Right. Like, totally. And he's like, fuck you. And I was like, dude, man, just relax. And he, he starts going for his, something in his pocket. Nope. So I <laughs> grab his other arm and I pull it. I say, keep your fucking hands there. What's your problem? He's like, fuck you. You're, you're high in crystal meth. And I was like, well, what? No, I'm not. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> I am thought I, you might am be. I, yeah. Now I, now I know what I'm dealing with. It. Anyway, he starts <laughs> kicking up at me, you know, like, yeah. so, you know, I just drilled him as hard as I could in the, right in the mouth, knocked yeah. him out. Yeah. And then right away I was like, fuck. Whoops. Yes. That was probably <laughs> a little over the top. And then I do, I just remember the look on that poor girl. She just looked at me like with a complete horror, you know, so I was like, man. So I walked to the front oh, of the bus the and I'm worst. like, I'm like, sir, cause we're still sitting there. I was like, sir, I just had an altercation with the gentleman in the back. And then he's at this point starts hobbling up the back. He's got the phone. That's what was in his pocket phone. He's calling 911. So he's like, you know what? Just the bus driver says, just get off and get on the bus in the front of us. So I go into the front of the bus. The guy lets me in. Yeah. And then buddy basically stands in front of that bus. So I can't go anywhere. Mm. Long story short. Poor victim. Both buses <laughs> dismounted. There must've been about five or six RCBs. They have a, yep. there was a transit police were there. Uh, luckily he had been, uh, arrested the day prior for hassling old people or so that he was hogtied in the back of one of the cop cars. Right. Freaking out. Why I'm bleeding. Why am I being arrested? You know, <laughs> but there was a young gentleman that had been sitting beside us and he had seen the whole thing. So he collaborated my side of the story. 
I had called my, my wife as this was happening, said, come back to the bus station. She's like, why? I was like, just come back. So she showed up to see me standing there with like all these police officers, all about a hundred people, all these, you know, <laughs> red flag, I'm sure for her, like, holy shit, what am I dealing with? You know? Yep. Anyway, they took a picture. I went back to the, uh, little precinct and uh, the nice police lady took a picture of the envelope. I don't think they actually, we took the check out, but they took my story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was concerned that I had got above and beyond. And she said, well, we don't really, you know, suggest that type of action, but perhaps the perhaps. other individual won't do that again. Yeah. Perhaps um, you had it coming. You're good to go. Anyway, so I, my wife dropped me off at the building and uh, the government building. I had to check in on time. And then about a minute after 12, my boss calls me, any problems? <laughs> I was like, no. Bye. Nope. <laughs> nope. All good. <laughs> and I've never been, never been on a bus since. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's. So yeah, that was, uh, probably, uh, um, not the wisest choice, but it was a, a direct correlation to my, my environment and headspace. So I, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, you ever watch a Bear Grylls episode? I think it was called Escape to the Legion. You ever see that? Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah, what were your yeah, thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, no, not worth it. No. Okay. No. <laughs> it just, that was a, yeah. uh, a lot of Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, got a note here. Haiti, watch oh, big yeah. tales of how the Haitians are being helped. Yeah. It's funny. I actually, I reached out to a buddy yesterday. My wife's like looking at flights and accommodations everywhere is like really expensive. Yep. Like, you know, we haven't been out of town for a while. It's like, wow, Hey, there's some stuff, real cheap flights down to Haiti right now. I bet there is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I reached out I'm like, and she's like, uh, what do you think of Haiti? And I'm like in the middle of something else. And I, I give a text over to, to Seb, uh, yeah, yeah. he's, yeah. uh, was down there doing some exactly. work while I'm like, Hey Seb, thinking about doing a family thing down in Haiti. <laughs> and he's, he's like, like uh, brother, I hope you're joking. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, what after the other? I'm like, yeah. okay. He's yeah. like, clearly, clearly your political science and your geography needs some work. Yeah. You need to yeah, talk yeah. to your, yeah. 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 No. Um, yeah. We went in there for a short span of time right after the, uh, within the week of the earthquake mm. or close to, um, just to see if we could, yeah, maybe help out on logistics sides for some of these NGOs, you know, other people. Yeah. Um, yeah, twofold. There's more to see. It was interesting. It worked out, uh, schedule wise. I, I was working in, uh, Algeria at the time and, um, yeah, we thought, why not? Um, my dad's brother at the, he's passed unfortunately, but he was a, a commander in the, the, uh, Canadian Navy and he was in charge of the, uh, the Canadian military efforts at mm. the time. Um, so he put me in touch with someone at the UN. So we showed up and we drove in from, uh, across the border and rendered ourselves a villa and had a driver and, um, showed up at the UN facility, installation, whatever, which was at the airport. And, uh, they invited us to their morning meeting. So it was just all UN people and us. And, uh, I don't think they realized who exactly or what we were. Right. And they mm. went through the whole spiel of what they were doing and blah, blah, blah. And the end, end of the, uh meeting they had, I stood up, they asked me to stand up and, you know, introduce myself and explain why we were there, all that kind of stuff. And then I could see the main, the main guy kind of like, huh? <laughs> and then at the end of it, he's like, oh, do you mind if I talk to you for a second? Yeah, by all means. And, uh, yeah, we were no longer welcomed into the, I didn't, I don't think they really realized <laughs> what we were doing, but it, we were basically just saying, listen, if you have NGOs out there, mm. cause it, it was a bit of a shit show, things were, yeah. You know, they had their hands full, but there was a lot of, you know, these companies that were there willing and wanting to help, but there's obviously risks involved with that, that part of the country. We said, you know, if they're concerned about their safety and they just want, you know, people with that kind of background, SOPs and help mm. them set up a safe way of doing things, we're around and willing and able, you know, so, right. um, did the same thing with Canadian embassy, but it wasn't really a, yeah, a, uh, 
favorable experience. And we, um, we ended up just kind of hanging out this, uh, old hotel, which had Wi-Fi, and a lot of the NGO groups were, were staying there too. So we just befriended quite a few of them and just helped them put together some procedures and plans and suggestions. Cool. Like just hung out and then we, we headed home. Very but, cool. uh, yeah, it's a, um, the history in Haiti is, is interesting. Mm. Um, yeah. How they came to the freedoms. I mean, obviously there's the French involvement, Napoleon and stuff and they're, yeah. um, yeah, they've had a hard run, but, uh, they're, they're a tough people. Well, you're quite the history buff. That really kind of comes through in your, yeah, in your books. There. I do like, I do like the history and that's always the main thing for me in my travels is kind of like, you know, where and why is this happening? Mm. What's the history here? And, uh, it obviously repeats itself, but, uh, yeah, just touching old, you know, castles or old forts or. That's cool. Being, uh, there's just shit that's, I think that's a result of my growing up in Germany as a youngster, you know, just castles were, were neat or anything to do with the war, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just always stuck with me. I really enjoy the, the historical side of things. Well, you had a neat thing with the uh, sword as well too. That yeah. Was, that was a pretty, uh. Yeah. No, story. agreed. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm glad you like that. Um, yeah, that's at the end of civil. And that was, so my dad's dad was a, um, missionary doctor and he went into China. In fact, my dad's dad was born in China. Um, they went over there to teach the Chinese medicine and how to, you know, they're starting to build hospitals and how to run them. And he was there when the Japanese, so he's in Manchuria when the Japanese came through. Um, and he wrote a book, um, and I read it, but, and this sword, so there's a samurai sword. So my, my dad's dad was, uh, artillery, second wave Juno. Uh, and then he finished off, um, he worked for, uh, NATO in Brussels for the Canadians. And I just remember, and then he, he retired in Sandishton on the island okay. and they always, and from early days, they had their like wicker basket at the front door with the canes and the umbrellas, yeah. but there was always the samurai sword in there that I was enamored with. Yeah, totally. And, um, anyway, when my grandma passed, she left it to me in her will because she knows into that kind of stuff. And, uh, it's a legit samurai sword, um, that he had brought back with him. But in his book, the only time he references, like there's no history or story behind that sword. Um, the only run in he had with the, uh, the Japanese military was, and they had, the Japanese had given uh, free passage to, to whites or, you know, foreign nationals mm. in that area. Um, but there had been an altercation where a Japanese soldier or soldiers had been killed. So as we know, the Japanese were fairly brutal. They went into one of yep. these hospitals, but it was a hospital for the, the Chinese military size stuff. And they basically bayoneted everybody, mm. doctors, yeah. nurses, patients. And one of the, um, staff was able to get a message to my grandfather to come help. And when he got there, he confronted the Japanese officer in charge. And he said, that's the one time he was, he feared for his life. Mm -hmm. so he basically said, this is a place of medicine, not a place of, but you don't, you can imagine, you don't tell a Japanese officer shit right. in that setting, right? Not in that setting, um, no. But anyway, he came back and he wasn't into military or any type of that, but he came back with a sword and that would not be something that someone just gives away, right? No. Um, so I had the sword, I looked at it, um, and I gave it to my son because it's family. I said, you know what, son, this is, this is yours. There's two things. We could just let it rot away, you know? Or we could track down its original family and see if we could give it back to the rightful owners, you know? Cool. Um, so I had reached out to a gentleman through LinkedIn. I found, uh, he was in Tokyo. He runs a, Paul's his name. He runs a, a company called the Japanese sword. And he had been a curator for the British museum in London there for the, that department. And then gone over to 
done really well for himself, but he just loves the samurai sword and culture and stuff. So I sent him pictures, shipped him the sword. Like we went back and forth for a year or so. And I, you know, trusted him. He said, you know, the only way I can tell you more, um, is by getting my hands on it. So I shipped it to him and he said, yeah, this is an old family sword. It's over 500 years old. Wow. The tip had been broken off at some point and they repaired it. So it was no longer legally, a, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but there was no markings on the handle where typically the blacksmiths would leave a mark and they could from there maybe figure right. out. But what he said is give me some time and I'll, I'll get back to you. So we did. And what happened is, um, the, uh, shrine, uh, for the emperor Gotoba on the Oki Islands, which is on the North between, uh, Japan and, and Korea. Um, he was an original emperor that fought the samurai and lost, and he was exiled on this, on this island, but he was, a a keen, um, sword enthusiast and made his own swords and stuff. Anyway, so that's, they were willing to take it on and they would look after it and, uh, you know, put it on display for people to see. And so I said, fuck yeah, but the deal is the family, we go over and we hand over the sword. And so the kids and I, we flew over to Okiel in Japan and, uh, yeah, handed the sword. Good deal. Yeah. So my, my son, uh, yeah, I stood there. Uh, it was interesting cause, uh, you know, there's this, uh, shrine, um, priest in his full on garb. And we go through the whole procedure to show our respect and honor to the gods and mm. the emperor. And my son's there and he's, uh, his white socks had gone through the washing machine. So they're now pink. Anyway, so he's in his, you know, I thought it was an interesting <laughs> juxtaposition of culture and stuff. So there he is with a samurai sword, handing it, you know, in his. It was pink socks. And that's why the chapter is called pink socks. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know it was, it was really a, it was a good experience for for them and I, to be honest with you, and I was, I was quite taken with Japan. If you have the opportunity to go there, it's, they got their shit dialed. At it's some neat. point. Yeah. I think I should probably do yeah, that. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat spot. Anyway. So yeah, that's uh and I thought that was kind of, I mean, I, I don't say it, but I think in, in a way it kind of comes out, it's kind of soldier's honor, you know, you, this was, you know, politics war aside. I mean, we know they were brutal, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, it was probably just a soldier doing what he was told to do. And I. I get into that too with Seville on the, on the German side of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, and I see it, I, to be honest with you, I see it right now with, you know, that shit show in, uh, over in the Ukraine is, you know, I, I feel sorry for the young soldiers, whatever side they're just being thrown into the shit, you know? So yeah. I've, I've always taken that from my, I see the soldiering side of it where it's just young men and women doing what they're, what they're told it's not, you know, it's not the leaders that are swaying them in the wrong direction. But, uh, so that was my effort to kind of maybe give something back that didn't belong to us and belonged to the family that obviously probably lost, lost family. Yeah. And there was a gentleman there, um, Mr. San, as I called him, but he was the, um, the sword specialist, the government sword specialist. And, uh, he was probably in his eighties. It's hard to tell, they're hard to gauge, but he had, knowing the history of, you know, Japan military, he guaranteed he served. And, uh, but, um, in the morning we were leaving really early. And, uh, when he found out the story behind the sword, cause I think a lot of swords have been returned because the Japanese military mass produced them World War One, World War Two, mm -hmm. right? But this one's an old, an old really family old. sword. So when he, when the um, translators explained to him the story behind it, he was, I could tell that he was like, oh, he was quite, um, and then during dinner, uh, you know, through the translator, we kind of talked. Unfortunately, I never, I, one of my regrets is I never asked him what his background, but I didn't know the mm. protocol on that. Mm. And I don't know how comfortable they would feel sharing. Right. But in the morning we had to catch an early ferry off the island. And when we showed up at like seven, there was Mr. San and he had a gift for my son and my daughter. And I think he, 
you know, I didn't speak Japanese, obviously he didn't speak English, but we had, we had learned how to bow properly. Okay. And so we, we bowed and then I grabbed his hand and shook it and he laughed. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I think he appreciated that we were giving something back. That you know is I mean? so, really yeah. cool. So that, for me, that was the neatest part of the, the experience was his. Well, that definitely yeah. came across in the book too. Yeah. Which that's is cool. Which is pretty I appreciate neat. That. Yeah. 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 You never know how things come across, right? Totally. I think we covered a lot of the things on here without going, uh, too deep in some of the, uh, the more personal ones that they're, they're asking there. Um, is there anything that we should be talking about that we haven't covered? Um, no, I mean, I think Seville, it's a tough, so it's been out since what, May? Um, it's a tough sell because it's, yeah, it's a follow-up book. I don't know how many of those exist because if you haven't read Appel, it wouldn't, you could probably comment, but if, you know what I mean? If you read Seville without knowing. No, you could, you could read Seville on its own. You could, but some of the names. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah well, like, what it does is it'll make somebody want to read Appel yeah, too, sure right? Enough, so, yeah, yeah. but Agreed. It, it, yeah. it's totally a standalone. You don't have to do yeah. one to get the other. Cause I, I really enjoyed reading the, uh, the perspective from the, um, uh, the PMC side yeah, and all the right. references you made. And, and um, I think that was lacking, right? Cause I think there can, I might be wrong, but there can be a kind of a, a negative connotation to the you know, the, the Blackwater stuff and whatever, like. Some people have that, right? Yeah. And then that's Whereas, actually one of the questions that they, they had yeah. was, um, yeah. um, uh, juggling the, cause it's a positive thing, but yeah. there is that negative, uh, sphere around it and the, uh, some ethical quandaries at times yes, too, being 100%. able to, yeah. uh, and how you might juggle that. And I found, and that, you know, a similar reason Seville made sense because it does educate to a certain extent and it shows, it portrays, you know, like the guys on my team. Uh, in Afghanistan team too, there, Aaron and Chris, like Aaron, he was, um, ex, uh, British officer. Um, so it, it was interesting cause I'm, you know, I've been with armor group for a while. I had my experience, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. So I took over, you know, as team leader, but then I got, you know, my subordinate is, you know, a fresh officer out of the British, you know, obviously mm -hmm. he's more than capable and sure, but we were all good. We understood like we were a team would, there wasn't that hierarchy. It was more just a, a positional thing, but right. Chris was ex, uh, Royal Marine. Uh, I actually had two Royal Marines. Um, the other two guys were uh, Brit, uh, Brit army, yeah. one in one, you know, an MC, a military cross. So they're all experienced guys, but, uh, Aaron went on, he's a, he's a doctor now. Um, so he got into med school after and did really well for himself. Chris is still out there doing the health and safety type of stuff. So there was, you know, some really, some good people. And when it came to ethics, we were not out there looking the fuck around. We were just there to do a job. And I think armor group, you know, especially for the FCO, cause they vetted the FCO had mm. final call on who. So your resume and stuff would go to the FCO before they allowed you on that project. Um, and I think they, they did a good job, you know, where you had people that were there for the right reasons that can't necessarily be said everywhere, but I can't comment for, for anyone else. But mm -hmm. I know within my group and the way I am, we were there to provide a, a skill set and a a job, not out there to, to fuck around and. Yeah. Yeah. I'm well, not, yeah, that's not me. So if people want to get the book, what's the best place to, place to do it? Um, so yeah, both books are obviously on Amazon. Yeah. Um, Seville, uh, whether well, it's both audio books, but for Seville, it's only on Audible and Apple. Yeah. Um, or you could go, you know, I'm on Instagram. There's the Legion Engineer website, which has links to the books. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it just takes you straight to Amazon. Well, I'll um, put. I'll put those links up there. Appreciate that. Yeah. And if, yeah, if they wanted, I don't keep a lot of books, but if people, every once in a while they, people ask for a, a signed copy, what mm -hmm. I do basically is I just order a handful from Amazon. Yeah. And, uh, 
basically I just sign them and ship them and it's just the cost of whatever it was on Amazon and the shipping and yeah. I'll send it off it's if crazy. people are interested in that. Yeah. That's awesome. Joel, thank you very much for oh, being on the podcast. Thank you. Really enjoy your conversation. Appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime. 